0: Welcome to the Eye on the Cure
1: podcast, the podcast about winning the fight against retinal disease from the Foundation Fighting Blindness.
0: Welcome everyone to the Eye on the Cure podcast. I am Ben Shaberman with the Foundation Fighting Blindness. I am your host and we have a very special episode today. Um, I am delighted and honored to have as our guest the co-founder and chairman emeritus of the Foundation Fighting Blindness, yes, Gordon Gund. And what's really special, it's always special to talk to Gordon, but as I think many of you know, the Foundation is celebrating its 50th anniversary, so I will be talking with Gordon about some reflections over the past 50 years. There's a lot to talk about. But before uh, we start our, our conversation, I wanted to give you a little background on Gordon. Some th- I learned some things in doing my little research here. So Gordon attended Harvard, where he majored in physical sciences and sociology, and he also played ice hockey. I didn't realize that, Gordon. That's pretty cool. Um, he also served in the Navy, in the U.S. Navy, and he was the department head on two destroyers. That's pretty cool. As I think a lot of people know, he's CEO of Gund Investment Corporation, and he's been on the boards of Kellogg and Corning. And I know in our Columbia office, um, there were beautiful sculptures of birds and other natural sculptures done by Gordon. Gordon, you're a very accomplished sculptor. And then finally, um, by no means least, Uh, Gordon has owned the Cleveland Cavaliers, the San Jose, he's been the majority owner, I should say, of the Cavs, Cleveland Cavaliers, the San Jose Sharks hockey team, and the Minnesota North Stars hockey team. And excitingly, Gordon, you drafted LeBron in 2003, and I've seen videos of that. That was a cool moment.
1: That was a great moment. Thank you,
0: Ben. And what's exciting, I joined the foundation in 2004, and as being a a kid from Cleveland, it was really cool to join a foundation and see LeBron on our webpage. So thanks for doing that. So again, delighted to have you, Gordon. And I have some specific things I'd like to talk to you about. But before we we go into those specifics, this is a big question, but we've approached, reached our 50th anniversary. It's been an incredible journey. And I was just wondering if you have any thoughts or reflections you wanted to share looking back over that long period of time and all
1: that's been accomplished. Well, I, I think that the, the key thing, and and it has always been the case with the Foundation Fighting Blindness, uh, that, that it's, it's been the result of extraordinary teamwork of a lot of people and a lot of leadership over the years, uh, over 50 years, and A lot of um, researchers that have been part of the whole whole picture and really hugely important to it. The Scientific Advisory Board that has been world-class since we started, since it started back in 1972, we started the foundation in 71, but um, realized because all of us who were part of that founding group were lay people did not have uh, PhDs or MDs or any real background in, in medicine to speak of either. And so, so we, needed, we needed people who were world-class, both as clinicians and as, uh, as PhDs and, in various disciplines. And so it was really, I, I think, the teamwork that the lay people that have, have always been part of the board and chapter systems and, and part of our professional staff have always worked very well as, as team members. With with the researchers and and with our scientific advisory board members, and that's been a key to the foundation all the way through the 50 years. We've had uh, a, gr- a lot of great teamwork, a lot of a lot of um, passion about the about the goal of and the mission of the foundation. That that comes from all the chapter heads, the board members. Um, and 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 all of the scientists really have this passion about the about the foundation's mission. And so I would say that's the that's been the key all the way through. And it's been a, a, a real joy having the ability to work closely with a number of people over years to try and uh, advance the progress of the foundation and achieve its mission. And it's it's great to be able to say we are now doing that. And have done it in uh, many significant ways, uh, had many advancements, and and um, and more, more, much more in the pipeline right now, which is very exciting.
0: Yeah, it really is an exciting time, as we often say. We we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 45 clinical trials underway, and I know those early days were were quite a, a difficult journey. But I I want to ask, I know your journey with retinitis pigmentosa was particularly challenging. You lost your vision pretty quickly. Your as you said you've said before, the last stone that you turned over was that journey to Russia to try to find an answer. But then, when you realized that you you weren't going to be successful in saving your vision, you decided to try to do something for everybody else. And can you reflect on the moment when you and Luli, who is, was so important to the foundation's beginning and operations that moved forward, can you reflect on what that was like or, or what happened well, well, in your mind to decide sure. to and the
1: foundation? And, and, and what, when I was losing my sight back in the... Uh, in the '60s, I I started having. Uh, you mentioned that I'd been an officer in the Navy and and um, and was able to do that, fortunately, um, with and and maintain my sight through through that time. But then it started to go right after, uh, or I started to really notice it after I'd, I'd gotten out of the Navy in in 1965, early '65, and I. Um, I started losing my night vision and was having difficulty, more and more difficulty seeing at night. So my 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 retinitis pigmentosa was that was of that kind where where night vision went first, and in a, a sort of down into a tunnel, and then uh, by I'd lost my night vision by 1968, 69. And then my day vision went in 1970, and it went in about six or eight months. very atypical, and I wouldn't want to frighten anybody by uh, the suggestion that that might happen to them. It was it was very unusual the way it happened very quickly uh, for me. The day vision went, uh, and and by the end of of 1970, I'd lost um, I'd lost all of my central vision uh, and and my day vision. So. So and it was very uh, during those years. Lily and I were married in in '66, and when we first were married, I didn't know that I had uh, a retinal degenerative disease, and uh, and didn't know, and really for a few years after we were married, um, and there was no uh, no real sense that I was going to lose it very fast. But but uh, as that happened, as it was going, the night and then the day vision. Uh, I found my, I found, I was looking all over. Lulu and I were together to find ways to hopefully treat it, and maybe, maybe slow the progress of the disease or even stop it, or even, you know, possibly reverse it. So it was very frustrating because there was no research going on then to speak of, which, which um, uh, really um, struck us. I mean, really impressed us as, the fact that even though we just sent a man to the moon and all of that in 69, we, we weren't able to, uh, there, there was no research really going on of any major nature or comprehensive nature around the country or around the world. And we, uh, I kept uh, running into dead ends when I'd go see a doctor who was, I was told we had, was doing uh, research on finding treatments or cures for these diseases each time I'd Get to their office. They diagnose me, and and then they tell me their research had run into a dead end or wasn't at a point yet where it could benefit me. Um, I mean that was actually true with even with Elliot in 1970. Dr. Elliot Burson, who was so important to the original multidiscipline lab, he told me that too. But he he told me in the summer of '70. I said, well, how is your research going? He said, well, I'm sorry to say, I. I haven't gotten very far with it. I have plans. I'd like to start the first multidisciplined laboratory for the, rec- for the study of retinal degenerations. And I have a plan to, provide, to uh, propose to the Mass Eye and Ear Infirmary, where he was, and he was also on the Harvard faculty, uh, and, and to see if they would, if, if they would uh, allow me to start a, uh, the first ever lab for this purpose. And... and uh, and, he's, and he said, and I'm going to be putting together a proposal to raise funds for it. So I said in the in the summer of '70, but the only the only thing I had left to do was to try this research in Russia, which you mentioned, which was the last stone I I could turn over to try it because by then I'd talked to everybody who was supposedly involved with research, and there was none that was available to me. So I planned to go to Russia, but after that, I, if if, I, if that didn't end up providing any help for me, then I was uh, that then would be. I said I would like to get involved with him, and uh, would call him after I after I gotten back from Russia. And it, as it turned out, Russia was a tough um, go. There, it was clear within a few weeks. I was there for about six weeks, but it was a, a bio animal biostimulant kind of program uh, uh, and, and ultrasound stimulation, the combination of the two shots, injections of amulant, animal biostimulants and also using ultrasound to stimulate the retina. And those were the composition of the treatment. It didn't work. I could tell within two weeks that it, that it wasn't. I, had, I stayed there for another almost four um, in, in Odessa and so during the time I was there, uh, Lulia wasn't able to go with me. She had just given birth to our second son, who fortunately I saw before I left to go to Russia. My brother Graham took me over. He had had experience with that, bearing in mind that it was the heights of the Cold War, too, in, uh, towards the end of 1970. Um, so a, a very unusual time to go there. In any event, what happened was that. Uh, it didn't work, and Luli came to pick me up at the at other end of this six-week period or so. And on our way back to the states, we we had lots of time to talk about what I did. That had had lots of time to think about. Which, well, where do we go from here? Where do I go from here? What is it? Uh, what do I really want to be able to do and care about, and want to think about in terms of how I adjust and deal with with blindness and how I can be uh how I hopefully can be a, a good husband and a father of two we then had two sons and and also what what we would turn our own frustrating experience try to turn it into, which was something positive for other people. So so that's kind of how how I came to wanting to get a hold of Elliot when we got back and after he put his proposal together and then and then start considering how to how to find financing for it or fund the funding for it. Interestingly, what what that consisted of was Mass wanted us wanted to have the foundation fighting blindness when it when it was was finally put together later that that the fall of 1970, November of 71, I should say. Um, but wanted us to pay for the construction of the lab in their in their new building, Mass Eye Infirmary building, and and also wanted a, so they wanted three hundred thousand dollars to be raised by by the end of uh, nineteen seventy one, and then by July of nineteen seventy two, another three hundred and seventy five to be used for for financing the equipment of the laboratory and the staffing of it. So uh, so the, so the t- challenge that was given to, well, Elliot had and gave to me and to Ben Berman when he introduced the two of us together, was to raise uh, a total of, of $675,000 by, by July 1 of, of 72. They had to show the first 300 by uh, January 1, and and we did. And if you, if you ran those numbers just to, out of curiosity, in today's dollars, that that would be the equivalent of four and a half to five million dollars as a challenge in today's dollars, now fifty years later, to give you an idea of what that meant to us as we looked at it uh, in terms of what we had to produce to get this lab going. So that was the catalyst that got us starting the foundation. And Ben and I, Elliot introduced both of us together. In the spring of '71, of, of and we agreed by that summer that we wanted to we wanted to take on this challenge, and so that's how it that's how the reason got started. Luli and I agreed that we would uh, commit ourselves or dedicated ourselves to trying to make this work, realizing that I wasn't going to probably I I didn't think my sight would be restored or that I would have the benefit of it, but um, but at least we could turn the very frustrating experience we'd had into something positive. And that's what, that's what got us involved.
0: Right. And I, I, I'm glad you mentioned how much you needed to raise for that first lab because your first project was a pretty heavy lift. It wasn't like you, you oh, yeah. put it off small. That That's a big project. And I think one other thing that's really remarkable is how many great pioneering investigators, clinicians, researchers joined our scientific advisory board at that early stage. And that was a time when so little was known about these conditions. It wasn't like they were jumping in to to make a lot of money in, in developing or selling treatments because they were just still figuring out how the retina worked. And I understand one of our scientific advisory board members was a doctor named George Wald.
1: That's right. Yes.
0: And and you had mentioned this to me previously. I did a little research on him. He won the Nobel Prize in 1967 for basically discovering and outlining how light activated photoreceptors in the retina and sent electrical signals to the brain I mean that's just basic retinal function so they didn't really understand how the retina worked until the late 60s really
1: that's right yeah that's it's it's remarkable that um and and I would just going back to this scientific advisory board and and dr George wall but also the uh, the composition of our Scientific Advisory Board from the very beginning was really the genius of, of well, Elliot, because he knew John Dowling, who was professor of biology at Harvard, and was on our board for many years, and Alan Ladies, who was the chairman for the first 32 years, and Dr. Mort Goldberg, among others, were, were on that original uh, board. And many of them were, they knew each other and admired each other's abilities and knowledge. and. Where they stood, they also recognized, as we did, that the big challenge was to to better understand the retina and the whole visual process, and and to better understand these diseases, because until you had that level of knowledge or understanding, how could you begin to look for possible therapies or treatments and cures? Yeah, you had to understand the diseases to begin with and the whole visual process. So, yes, he was hugely George Wall was hugely important and. John Dowling had, had worked in his laboratory, so John knew him and was able to convince he and his wife, also George Wald, in, in research, Ruth Hubbard, um, were both on the board early on. We were very lucky to have them. Thanks for sharing that. So I, I'd like to switch gears a little
0: bit. Um, we've been talking about the Scientific Advisory Board and some of the researchers, but I think one of the really successful elements of the foundation story is just the ability to raise awareness and fundraise. And I remember when we had our office in Baltimore in Owings Mills, we had photographs from events in those early days. I want to say they were the 70s, maybe the 80s. I remember seeing a photograph of Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers. Right. At right. That event. We attracted quite the Hollywood
1: group of stars. I, I don't know if you remember. Oh, very, uh, very well, I do. Sure. And, and and I know that a lot of this happened because uh, not only had we heard from Steve Wynn, who been, had uh, been in touch with us when he had read about us and actually read an a, a ad placement in the New York Times, a full page ad. And we got this check from him, which was very nice and followed up to see why and so on. And he as, as you know, he was very generous to the foundation. Well, he had with the Golden Nugget. He had contracts with people like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers and Lionel Richie and uh, and on and on. Uh, Billy Joel's several very uh, high-profile entertainers, uh, and they they gave uh, dinners for fundraising dinners uh, in New York at the Waldorf Hotel, and and the first of those. Was, uh, where Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin performed in the early eighties. It was quite extraordinary to have uh, those two as, as performers. But then on, on and on it went with a lot of other wonderful entertainers like that. And that helped us get some, some publicity. We did, we, we worked with a lot of different, uh, TV programs, the Today Show and, and, uh, 2020 and, uh, 60 Minutes, many, many others over the years that we've, where we've had the chance to tell the foundation story and uh, describe why we existed and what we were trying to do. And, and that we needed, we needed funding in order to, to accomplish our, our mission. So anyway, that was, was hugely helpful. And what happened when, when we started doing that, once we had this challenge that I mentioned earlier from the Mass I and Aaron from Harvard university to fund, to get started the first multidiscipline lab ever for the study of Retinal degenerations. But once once we started the publicity efforts, it started to really become clear that there were many more thousands of people interested in seeing uh, successful research done on these diseases, and there were a lot of people who wanted to help raise money and help uh, do fundraising events and so on. And so we we knew by the middle of of seventy two, after we'd achieved the the goal that it we been, had been set for us, that we knew we could in, expand the scope of this effort a lot more than just by funding this initial lab, that we could do a lot more research of all kinds in, around this country and around the world. And so that's when we worked very hard to put together the Scientific Advisory Board to start with. So we, so we had an architect group of people, world-class people, who could help us design the program for the research. And then and then raise uh, additional money uh, along the way. And that's kind of how how we got started. It was really uh, as early as as, uh, as 72 and three when, when we had the scientific advisory board and we, and the, the first lab was dedicated in November of 1974. that is what was called the Burman Gun Lab. But we by then, by the time of that dedication, we were we were moving fast and furiously after additional research efforts
0: right and as we've been discussing you know that early research was was just very basic and very challenging it, it it didn't move nearly as quickly as our constituents would have liked but i know when i started in 2004 we were still doing mostly basic research a, a lot of lab research but Things a few years later really started to change when things started moving into clinical trials, and the gene therapy that ultimately became Luxterna really started showing some efficacy in uh, early two thousand eight. I remember that well.
1: <laughs> oh, that was that was a very exciting time.
0: It was-, it, it was very exciting, and really, I think the trajectory of research began to, that was sort of the beginning of the really surge in clinical trials and human research. And over time, just attracting more and more companies into our space and collaborating with companies. And as that progressed, I I think it was now five or six years ago, you made the decision as having been the chairman for over 40 years to step down and pass the baton to David Brent. And you know that's a that, that was a big moment. I, I I don't mean to embarrass you Gordon, but you you, ha, you still are, but you were the, really the rock star of the foundation fighting blindness and uh, not only our leader but just a wonderful personality that everybody so much enjoys and you brought hope to so many people. So that the decision to pass the baton was a big deal. Can you talk more about that decision and why you decided to, to do that then?
1: Yeah, but may, maybe let me just let me fill in one uh, area that you, you mentioned earlier, which was sure. when we first started what it was like there. There weren't that many uh, PhDs or clinicians doing research in the field. So we had to populate the field. Early on, and that's where the scientific advisory board again became so important because we had no credibility to speak of it. from a medical standpoint. We, the founders, we just, we had a lot of passion about trying to achieve the mission, but, uh, but we didn't know what we were doing. They gave us the credibility to attract very top notch PhDs and clinicians into the field, um, to start with, which was, was really very important. And, and there wasn't, didn't exist really before that. So moving forward to when, uh, 19, I mean, 2015, when I, both you and I were, uh, I guess you could say getting a little long in the tooth. At least we were, we'd been at it for quite a while. And it, and I didn't want, neither of us wanted the foundation caught without having a succession plan for the roles that we had been playing for some time with the foundation. So, so we both felt it was very important, uh, that we, that we challenged the board to uh, do something, to have a committee study, not we called it, the board organizational and and uh, succession strategic planning. So, uh, or it became called, called the boss committee and was headed up by uh, some of our very able board members, including Haynes Lee, who was the chairman, but several others who've been hugely important to the foundation. And, and they, they analyzed what was the best thing to do to be sure that the foundation didn't, wasn't left stranded without, without, uh, Lulee and I as being active. We wanted to be sure it continued on successfully. And I, I'm, i I feel very good about the way that has happened. And along with that, what Lully and I also felt is, is we, we felt if we want to give the next leadership, David Brandon so many others who have been set, so important to the foundation, not only volunteer leadership, but also professional leadership. We wanted to try and help provide some funding uh, to to do some of the, to move some of the potential therapies along into the clinic. And so in order to do that, what we felt was very important was to do that, the gun family match, the Gordon and Lura gun family match, which which has been able to help significantly fund, thanks to the support of a lot of people who have matched our challenge. That's allowed allowed the new leadership to have to have a head start on the funding needed to do translational research, and carry it forward, which has been was very much our our objective, and our desire. So to help with the succession and to help make it work, that's why we went ahead with that challenge.
0: And so many people generously heeded your call. Do you recall exactly how much was raised in total through your family challenge? About about
1: one hundred eight million dollars.
0: That's incredible. That's incredible, and that was, if I remember correctly, I think over an eighteen month
1: period. Well, no, it was a challenge. was issued that over that period, but people had five years to pay off major gifts. That's right. Okay.
0: And shortly after that concluded, not too much later, then the RD fund was established, which has been just a whole new funding source and avenue for moving treatments into clinical trials. And the RD fund has been so exciting because we're collaborating from a funding standpoint with venture capital firms to get these companies off the ground and move promising treatments into the clinic.
1: And, uh, the original capital the first fund came from the challenge match from both the donations from others and in, in our matching challenge and and the idea of that was really started around the year 2000 when when we started the National Neurovision Research Institute which the idea for which was that if we're going to if we're going to be able to help move help develop the funding needed for clinical trials for translational research which is Far more significant than laboratory, the cost of laboratory research. We we really needed the kind of fundraising capabilities in this case, dealing with venture capital companies and, and uh, early stage biotechs and so on, and, and getting and and using market the market to help fund those things, so that so that and commercial enterprises, so that we could do more than just raising money through fundraising events. We could uh, help provide the funds needed other ways as well so so that's something I I, I think it's important that is another key strength of and has been over the years of the foundation we keep looking for new ways to apply technology in a, in a research sense but also new ways to raise funds that are unique and have their own special aspects to them that that are, are attractive to raising money for I research and it's really I think the key, the key is we're constantly looking at at where, out ahead. Where are the gaps? What are the problems that we're going to confront? And now, if we're going to have start having clinical trials that, that need funding, how are we going to raise that money? How are we going to? What steps can we take to help move that along? Same thing with uh, if you need to go through animal models. That was kind of the. T- what what went through our thinking when when we started when we built the animal facility back in in 1989, the first dog facility in, in New Bolton, Pennsylvania, was because we knew there were some potential therapies coming along that needed to be uh, proven to be uh, safe and efficacious uh, in the in the lab, but eventually in animals, in order to get the FDA approval, which is what happened with Spark Therapeutics, and fortunately with animals that we had already. Identified that had the same genotype that exists in humans allowed us to be able to make, do those trials early in well in two thousand two thousand and one and then which led eventually to advancement into humans in two thousand seven eight so I, we we're constantly looking out ahead to try and and identify what what hurdles we're going to have to get over and then how we're going to get over them and that's been the way it's worked for fifty years
0: and I I think what's interesting about that model and always being sort of on the forefront of science and, and looking ahead with foresight is that the foundation now, and we see this with the RD fund, is really looked at as the experts. We provide almost like a seal of approval or the housekeeping seal of approval. That's on right. Research. When companies and venture capitalists see us investing they feel confident that it's a good investment because that scientific prowess that we've demonstrated for so many years throughout our history. So it's paying off not only in what we're funding, but the investments that we're
1: attracting. Oh, I think very much so. We get a tremendous amount of leverage out of the expertise that we've that we've developed through our scientific advisory board and and how well we are working on 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 these problems from different directions the ways the expertise that we've demonstrated have really gotten us a leadership position with with commercial enterprises with venture capital companies or or biotechs or pharmaceutical companies who see us as the expert in the field which is you're right. I think a very important aspect of why the RD fund is showing so much potential for success.
0: Exactly. And Gordon, if we can um, close close out with just one other question and thought, and this is something that's uh, near and dear to my heart, because I talk to a lot of patients and families, and they come to us looking for guidance and hope and an understanding of the research. What would you say, or what do you say, when you meet somebody who's newly diagnosed, or maybe has a child that's newly diagnosed? What what the message I think is a little different
1: than what it was 50 years ago? Oh, for sure. Well, first of all, I'm happy to say that I believe they can really have hope now in ways that wasn't possible 50 years ago. We were just starting out. But now I, I think to start with, I would urge them. Uh, to get genotyped or to have their child or their friend or relative uh, genotyped and to, and to have them registered in my retina tracker with our patient registry. So their information is part of, of solving the puzzle for that particular genotype that they have and how to how to make sure that those who might have potential therapies for that will know about them and be able to contact them and involve them in, in uh, clinical trials. Another another thing, I I think it's a way for them to help themselves. The foundation offers them an opportunity to not only get involved and be active in fundraising, which is going to be critical to solving these problems uh, along the way and 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 to getting the clinical trials underway and accomplished, and getting the approvals that are needed. So I would I would say, look at it as as a source of great hope for their relatives and. Their, child, their children and whoever it is that's close to them that has these problems and see it as a way to to help yourself and that's what the foundation has always been and and hopefully will continue to be and be very important to people
0: definitely and i think that's such an important message is that there's a lot people can do even if you can't get a treatment today between the genetic testing the registry trials and of course fundraising. There's so many ways people can drive the mission. And I congratulate you and Luli and our other volunteer leaders for doing such a great job inspiring people to drive our mission. It's been an incredible journey. We've raised now over $850 million toward our mission. And that number just keeps the momentum just keeps growing and growing every year. And, uh, That is in large part from your leadership, Gordon. So we thank you for being such an inspirational figure and giving so much of your time and uh, your generosity toward the mission.
1: Well, Ben, thank you, first of all, so very much for uh, the long, very strong effort you've given to the foundation over the years and tremendous help. And the way you make the story about it as understandable as you do and and you really have made a terrific difference. So thank you for that. I, I think the other thing people, I would hope, would would understand is that this the way one of the great things about the foundation as it's moved along is how it's been rejuvenated over and over again with new new blood, new people who want to make a difference to it and bring that passion. And new professional staff like yourself, who makes uh, makes a great difference uh, to the progress of the effort and to making it understandable and, and motivating. So I thank you for that. And I hope we'll all continue to do that. It, it will only work successfully if everybody pitches in and does what they can.
0: Definitely. And it's been thousands and thousands of dedicated donors, volunteers, scientists, and um, other constituents who have got, got us to this wonderful juncture.
1: Yes, it is, and, and, and that's, that's been a key, and I, I just urge everybody who can, who find, can find a way in, in many different ways to make a contribution, not just financially, certainly that's important, but I think they can also learn a lot from each other at our, at our Visions conferences and other gatherings and working with our, with our chapter efforts that's all going to make a huge difference. And it's all critical to it.
0: And speaking of chapters, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, mention our new chapter initiative, Louie's next chapter and, um, and all the, all all the new people that we brought on board to build that chapter network. And thank you, Gordon, for, for being a big part of getting that off the ground and, strengthening our presence in communities around the country. We, we have more than 40 chapters, lots of inspired volunteers and staff, and uh, that's just helping us drive our mission even further.
1: Well, thank you. It is, it is critical for all of us to, who care about, about having these, these disease, uh, diseases treated and, and dealt with. Uh, it's going to take all of us to do it. Definitely. Thanks, Ben.
0: Thank you, Gordon. Thanks again for taking the time to just reflect. We we could go on for hours because there's (laughs) there's a lot of ground to cover in 50 years, but I think we hit some salient points, and I appreciate, again, you taking the time to to talk about those. And I want to remind our listeners that if you have questions or comments, you can send them to podcast at fightingblindness.org. Again, that's podcast at fightingblindness.org. And for people who just want to learn more about the research, just visit fightingblindness.org, where we're reporting on all the latest developments and we have tons of educational information. And Gordon, congratulations on a wonderful run with the foundation, and you're still doing a lot. Very active. We appreciate that. And I hope you and your family have an
1: enjoyable holiday season. Thank you, Ben. Well, thanks for all your help. And I hope the same for you and for all your listeners. Okay. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank
0: you. And happy holidays to everybody listening across the the world, the cyberspace. And we appreciate you tuning in and for supporting the Foundation's mission. Take care, everyone. This has been Eye on the Cure. To help us win the fight, please
1: donate at foundationfightingblindness.org.